Good morning, Redemption Arcadia. Thanks for being with us this morning. So this song uh, that we're singing this morning is, is a new one. We sang it for the first time last week, but I've been thinking about these lyrics all week. Um, so powerful. Uh, the song talks about, um, the, the, the chorus goes, this is the sound of dry bones rattling. And it's, it's talking about Jesus's resurrection and, and how powerful God is to, to bring Jesus back from the dead. But I've been thinking about it in the context of um, this, this verse in Mark chapter 9, um, Jesus, Jesus heals this, this boy who, who has been consumed by an evil spirit. Um, and here, let's, let's read this. Mark 9, 20 says, And they brought the boy to him, and when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, How long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood, and it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately, the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. Let that be our cry as we're singing this song. We were running the wrong track. Here we go though.
please remain standing for the reading of God's word. Good morning. The reading for today is from John chapter 2, verses 13 to 25. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons, and the money changers were sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. All right. Nick. And uh, good morning, Redemption. I'm going to do a little, I, I'm the one that set this, set this up this way, but we need to move everything out of the way for what we're going to do right now. Um, my name is Frank. I'm the lead pastor here. If you're new here to Redemption Church, um, we are having, we're going to eventually get to John chapter 2, verses 13 to 25, but we're having a very, very, this is a very special day. Uh, many of you know Trey Fraley. His given name is Michael, by the way, but you know him as Trey Fraley. He's been... Uh, for the last 18 months, he's been a um, pastor in residence, or uh, he's been a residential pastor at Redemption Church, and uh, prior to that, he was uh, a member of the church, part of the church, and um, today we are moving him out of his residency, and we are ordaining him and licensing him as a pastor at Redemption Church, and so that's an exciting time for Trey. And so we're going to have a little ordination service for Trey right now. So Trey, his wife Hannah, and daughter Presley would come up here. And yes, they are Elvis Presley fans. Um, also, we'd like to have the Tylers come up, Tyler Thompson and Tyler James, and our elders, Steve Wheeler and Jim Moreland, if you would also come up here. I'm going to stand over here since I took my mask off, and the rest of you can... Uh, betrays leadership community, community here. Um, last week I mentioned that I've done more than 450, officiated more than 450 weddings. Um, I have not ordained 450 people into the ministry, but um, this is the first time I've ever both, I, I officiated Trey and Hannah's wedding. It's the first time I've officiated somebody's wedding and ordained them into the ministry, so kind of a Kind of a cool thing. Took me 61 years to be able to do that, Trey, so that's awesome, all right? So Redemption Church Arcadia, guided by the Holy Spirit, we have called Trey to be ordained 
as a Redemption Church pastor. In this congregation specifically, we are now going to call him, his title is Next Gen Pastor. By the act of this ordination service, as well as all of the other preparation that we have put Trey through in the last 18 months, we are indicating our faith in God that Trey will shepherd well, not only this congregation at Arcadia, but any other congregation that he might shepherd in the future. I charge all of us to receive from Trey the word of God by and through meekness and love. I further charge us to undergird Trey, Trey and his wife, Hannah, and his family, right now consisting of Presley, undergird them all with prayer, grace, and encouragement in his servants, service to God. We pray that Trey would be a blessing not only to our congregation, but to the whole house of God. In all things, we ask that we, Redemption Arcadia, show Trey our love, esteem, and joy for his calling to service as a pastor, and that we accept him as a spiritual leader. So Trey, hear the word of God as directed to ministers of the Church of Jesus Christ. Acts chapter 20. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the Church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. Ephesians chapter 4. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. Jesus. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, building up the body of Christ. In 1 Timothy chapter 4, be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness, for the whole bodily training uh, for while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. Trey, under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, you have been called to be a pastor. You are admonished by God to be urgent in season and out of season. Be of conviction. Rebuke and exhort, never failing in patience and in teaching. In all sincerity and wisdom, comfort and counsel the sick, the sorrowful, the downtrodden, and the troubled. Instruct all to live up to their calling in Christ Jesus. Trey, are you willing to assume the responsibility in the strength that God has given you as pastor? If so, answer, by the grace of God, I am. Would you join me in praying a prayer of ordination? Upon Trey and for Trey. Almighty and holy God, in every age and generation, you have chosen servants to shepherd and lead your people. We give thanks for your servant Trey, whom you have called to serve your people by, in this place and by your power. By your grace, we pray that you would enable us and him to use the gifts that you have given him to do your work amongst us. Fill him with your Holy Spirit and the power of the resurrected Christ that he may have the mind of Christ as your faithful servant. And we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. And we come to you by the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen. Trey, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, the head of the church, 
By the power and the encouragement of the Holy Spirit and in the wisdom of the Father, I now declare that you, Trey, are duly ordained and installed as a pastor of this congregation. Let us continue to pray that God would be pleased to sanctify you with his blessing and his love. Amen. Congratulations, Trey. So we're also going to do something a little different for the sermon today, which I think is kind of fun. Yeah, have you guys heard of uh, a rap battle? That's what's not happening this morning. (laughs) Whatever it is, I'm glad we're not doing it. Um, One of the beautiful things about ordaining um, uh, new people into the ministry is the ability to now delegate things. So would you pray for us as we get started? I'd love to. Heavenly Father, uh, thank you for this time that we get to look into your word and look into who you are, um, that we might be able able to, with better knowledge um, and understanding, be moved by the Spirit to worship you better. Um, Lord, I pray that this might be something that you use to change us in our hearts, and I pray that your Spirit would move. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. There are so many things about what, what, what is happening today that are just, you know, the movement of God. There are no coincidences. It's just fascinating uh, to me. Um, so many things that I want to talk about how God has brought this together. The first is that when we originally got the schedule from uh, the preaching collective of how we were dividing up John, I immediately started going through it, thinking about uh, who was going to Man, my thing is zoning in and out, isn't it? Do you know what might be going on? Okay. Do you need the handheld? I was telling Frank earlier, because he was like, you're going to have to use the handheld microphone. I was like, awesome. But I forgot my holster to like put it in, and I was practicing with the microphone to be able to yeah, to just be like, oh, you think let's, I forgot it, but I didn't. Let's go ahead. Let's well, <laughs> see, I didn't get, well, I didn't get it down. <laughs> it's like trying. When I was a kid, I always had those toy cap guns, and I'd like flip them. Testing, testing. Okay, it's working now. So you just have to imagine me doing that, because I can't do it, and I don't have the holster. All right, where was I? I was going about, about to riff on a bunch of stuff that's not even in my notes, but all right, so here we go. Um, <laughs> so I'm looking at what we're going to do, and um, I looked at this passage, and this is months ago, I looked at this passage, and I said uh, to myself, um, Trey represents the next generation in our church, and there's something about this passage that I feel like we need to hear from the next generation. Uh, One of the things about redemption, and and even just in my ministry personally, is that there's always been uh, for whatever reason, God has always blessed me with having young people around, and, and I appreciate that, training up people, and, and that's really important, but also the idea that uh, the church is intergenerational and next generational. Um, I, I just felt like we needed to hear from you on this, and I'll explain why later when we get to my point number three. I'll explain more specifically why we wanted to hear from you on this uh, a little bit. But um, uh, So I, th- I, I, I messaged you a couple of months ago. Yeah. And said, would you do this with me? And you said, yes. And uh, you didn't even know what I meant or what was going on, but you said yes, and I appreciate that. And then 
Um, it was maybe a month ago we started uh, putting together the elders and, and the leadership of Redemption Church. Neil Pitchell was involved in this as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, putting together the idea that, that, that we needed to ordain Trey and license him into ministry. And I was like, well, I got the perfect Sunday to do this. So uh, that's why this has worked out so well. Um, what we're going to do today is, is look at this passage, and, and uh, he's got three points that he has a burn about, and I've got three points that I have a burn about. My third point leads into this burn of, you know, getting, hearing from Trey about the house of God. And um, uh, those of you who know me, and, and I know that the elders and the staff know this about me, when we do something like this, I want an outline, but I don't want it scripted. I want it to kind of flow naturally. And it was fascinating as I was standing here in the first service listening to his first two points, his first two points about this passage where he had a burn were exactly my first two points too. So you're going to hear a sermon twice today, but from two different people, okay? And I promise you we'll be out of here, you know, before three or four this afternoon. It's no mm-hmm. problem. So um, <laughs> we'll be done reasonably on time. So this passage, what I'm going to do is I'm going to kind of introduce it. You're going to hit your three points, and then I'm going to hit my three, and we're going to end with a with a little discussion about the house of God, okay, yeah. uh, the church. Um, this is thought to be the first major confrontation that Jesus had with the professional Jewish religious leaders. Uh, and it, sets, it really just sets, up, it sets the stage for all of the antipathy that Jesus and the uh, perps had after that. But ultimately, what's interesting about this as well is that, and we find it specifically in this gospel, the gospel of John in chapter 10, ultimately the reason that the, the professional Jewish religious people wanted Jesus dead was because of his claim to be God. And you see that clearly in chapter 10. They're unhappy with his teaching. They're unhappy with um, his disciples. They're unhappy with the way he's healing people. They're unhappy with his ministry. They're unhappy with everything he's doing. It's interrupting their power, their status. It's turning everything upside down. They're very unhappy with that. They wish he would just go away. But when, when it became very clear to them, by the way, he's essentially saying he's God in this passage too. Yeah. They just don't get it yet. Right. But when it becomes very clear to them that he's saying, I am God, that's it. They're saying, no, the only thing that is acceptable at this point is we have to execute him. And so that's ultimately what this leads to. And we need to remember that the cleansing of the temple, this is happening at a very important time in the the life of the city or the town of Jerusalem that happened once a year. It was Passover week, and so people would come from all over the Mediterranean world who were Jewish in order to celebrate Passover week in the temple and with family and stuff in Jerusalem. And so literally tens of thousands of people would show up to Jerusalem. Think This is the scale that you need to think of it, uh, uh, comparatively speaking. Imagine Casa Grande, Arizona being awarded with the Super Bowl. It would be like 100,000 people suddenly flooding into Casa Grande, and you, you, have to, you have all of those people, all of this stuff going on. So there's lots and lots of people around either. And so each of us has studied this separately. We've talked a little bit about it. We've had some meetings and talked in general about what we wanted to do. Um, but our three points... We settled on without saying, well, I've already got that, so you need to find something else. So, Trey, yeah. it's all you, baby. <laughs> Thanks. Um, it is interesting, though, because I do remember teachers always telling me, like, if I repeat things, that means it's important. Yeah, so, um, absolutely. Frank is like that teacher saying, hey, repetition is good. So, there we are. Um, anyway, this passage, uh, which was so kindly read earlier, super, super important uh, 
to us knowing who God is. Uh, because we're learning about who Jesus truly is, his personality, part of who Jesus is. And Jesus, throughout the whole book of John, is identifying himself as God. I mean, J- John 1.1, 1, 1, in, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word being Jesus. So Jesus is identifying himself as God, and specifically in this passage, he's doing that. And there's different things on the authority that he assumes and the, uh, how he looks to the heart. God looks to the heart, but man looks to the outward appearance. He's identifying himself with God. But this is one of those, pa- those passages that people feel really uncomfortable with because it's not the God that we always want. We want the really nice guy who's never going to get mad or angry or do anything, but that's not who God is. So when we look at this, we're getting, in, and it's important that this is in the Bible because we're getting to know who God actually is. And I just think about how uh, crazy it would have been to be one of those disciples who were with him. And Jesus sees these people doing business in the temple. And then he's like, you know what? I'm going to go over here and just start braiding a whip. Immediately, I can't imagine being one of those people to look at uh, Jesus and like feel the anger coming off of him. It's kind of like when you're a kid and you go and you're staying at your friend's house and their dad yells at your friend. And then you're like, oh my goodness, I feel so uncomfortable. I wonder if it's like that, Jesus being God, coming into his temple and being angry at his children um, it's almost the same thing that's happening. But I would venture to say that there's, it's not just the disciples that were uncomfortable getting to know this side of Jesus. I know that even today there's people um, who are uncomfortable getting to know this side of Jesus. Uh, I mean, I always grew up thinking, isn't it a sin to be angry? But the answer is no, it's not a sin to be angry. It's a sin to sin in your anger. So there's also a difference between human anger and Jesus's anger, and that's what we're seeing here too. But Jesus is clearly angry. It says that the zeal for uh, my house will consume me. God is, God is, through Jesus, showing his anger at, at um, injustice. Okay, but this is the important thing, the difference between Jesus' anger and our anger. God's anger always leads to justice, and true justice always leads towards restoration. Restoration, uh, not just between God and man, but restoration between man and man. And sorry, I don't mean to interrupt you, but did you get that right? Though you note takers write that down. Seriously. God's anger leads to justice and God's justice leads to restoration. Okay. Now I just, I have to say, go ahead. Compare that to my anger. Compare that to my righteous anger, my self-righteous anger. Rarely does it lead to true justice. It might lead to my own warped view of justice Mm -hmm. and it almost never leads to restoration. Yeah. And I'm sure that's got to be true of everybody else. I'm not the only human being who's gone through that, I'm sure. Yeah. So that's, that is gold right there. I just wanted to say that. <laughs> okay, go ahead. Um, but to that point, we all want that restoration. We would mm-hmm. all agree, yes, I want the restoration. But the way to get there is God's justice, not our justice, which isn't justice because it doesn't lead to restoration. See, um, there is this illustration that Frank did uh, a while ago, I can't remember when it was, but this guy's trying to pick up a girl, and he ends up getting her digits, and she says, here's my number, you can call me if you call this number. And he's like, oh, I do want to call you, but I, I want to call you by the number that I want to pick. And then she's like, uh, okay, but you're not going to get a hold of me. I've given you the way to get a hold of me. I've given you the way to me, and if you just pick your own numbers, that's not going to be my number. You're not going to get to me. And so similarly, what's happening here is God's justice, God's justice 
is the only way towards life, not our idea of what justice is. I mean, and later we'll talk about why we can't trust what our understanding of justice is to begin with at its very nature, but trusting in God, so only God's way leads to life. Some things to note that's going on in this um, passage is that the event has God displaying God's wrath, not man displaying God's wrath. What this is not saying is that it's okay for people to go storm God's temple or his church with a whip and start flipping chairs because you don't like the way they're organized or you didn't like the music or something. That's not what this is saying. Um, Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. So it's not up to people. That's not our job to take God's vengeance into our own hands. Even when we see injustice. Did you notice that it's just Jesus who's flipping tables with the whip? It didn't say his disciples who were there with him because everywhere he traveled, his disciples were going with him. It doesn't say that his disciples rolled in with him and just started flipping tables like a bunch of mobsters and extorting <laughs> and, and like uh, trying to, what's the other one that they say, battery and stuff like that. They weren't going in there and trying to damage the place. It was just Jesus. Okay. Vengeance is the Lord's, not the Lord's people. Okay. We have a job, but it's not vengeance. Um, only, and here's one of the big reasons why. Only God's vengeance has no collateral damage. Okay, only God's vengeance doesn't hurt people who shouldn't be hurt because of what's going on in any situation. But human outrage does have collateral damage, always. Human outrage does not lead to justice, and it does not lead to um, restoration. See, we feel in our anger that we want to retaliate, and we feel justified. How often have I, even myself been in an argument where I justify my poor behavior based on what somebody else did to me? Well, yeah, but, but you did this, and that's why it was okay that I did. No, you still sinned. I still had sinned. So there's no way to just justify our sin because somebody else sinned. It's still our responsibility. We think that our vengeance, our idea of justice, leads to salvation. Well, I know how to fix this. I get it. You know what? I know if, if I just show this person how evil they're being and what they've done is wrong by stealing their stuff or breaking up their store or getting a bunch of people together and having a big party where we destroy things, that's not going to fix anything. When we take vengeance into our own hands, we're telling God that we do not trust him right. to bring justice. Mm-hmm. So am I to do nothing when I'm outraged by injustice? No. We do have a job as Christians, um, but since God is just, vengeance is his. That we do have a job, but that's not our job. But I do want to talk about something else to note. That's my first point, by the way, is that God is just. Okay. Um, This temple business was pretty shady, and it was shady because in verse 14 it says, Jesus just sees them doing business, and then he starts making a whip. So clearly... The Bible's saying that Jesus hates business. He's anti-business. He's anti-business, clearly. No, he's not anti-business, but he is anti-unjust business. And so I'll get into the unjust in a little bit. But there are two main things I've been taught by other people who know business stuff, that there's two really important things for business. Placement and profit. You kind of need both if you want to do well. Placement. Every real estate agent ever to commercial or residential have the three famous words. Location, location, location. location. We've all heard that. And that's exactly what they're exploiting. Nothing's new. 2,000 years ago, they're location, location, location. They're in (laughs) the outer courts, which is also known as the uh, court of the Gentiles. This was 
the place where Gentile is a $5 word for people who were not Jewish born. But they, they, these Gentiles were people who wanted to worship God because they still loved God and knew God, but um, they had a specific part of the temple that they could worship in. But the people doing business and selling animals was where they were supposed to be worshiping. I don't know if you've ever been to a country where they had... Thank you. That's exactly what I needed. I don't know if you've been to a country where they've had animal uh, uh, markets. I lived in Kenya when I was in college. I took a summer and I lived in Kenya and worked in a hospital. And there were animal markets there. And you, there's something I learned about animal markets. They're really loud. They are really loud. It's not just you walking by people. They're yelling at me, Mzungu, Mzungu, which just means like white person. Mzungu, come buy this. And it's like, I'm just trying to walk somewhere. Can you imagine trying to worship God where you're supposed to be worshiping and people are yelling at you, hey, hey, you need this. And there you hear other people trying to do business in the background. That's super disruptive. But they were also, they knew the, the business law of profit. You need profit to do well in business. But business teaches that we try to get the most profit, not the fair profit. As much money as you can get in the little amount of uh, capital that you have to give for it. That's like the business rule. And it makes me just think, um, if we're operating out of that mindset, we're not giving, or it's kind of like the Old Testament uh, imbalancing the scales, but these people come into the temple from all over the world and they have to buy their sacrifice because they're not going to lug a donkey, or I guess they didn't sacrifice donkeys, it was like a lamb or something, but they weren't going to lug. should have been a donkey. <laughs> should have been, been. They're not going to lug their animal for thousands of miles and feed them the whole way and carry all the food to feed them. They're going to try and just buy that at the temple. So once they get there, though, it's kind of like a monopoly. They're the only place that they get their animals for sacrifice was at the temple. So guess what? Whoop, get to yeah. put the price way up. It's like getting a hot dog at the, at the baseball game. You go and grab a $10 hot dog that's exceedingly mediocre. And you, you get your onions and stuff, but it's still just a mediocre hot dog that you paid in uh, um, exceedingly not mediocre amount for. And this is exactly what's happening here is that they're cheating them out of this money because it's the only place that they can get. And Frank goes into it a little bit more um, about how they're being dishonest with it. But first point is God is just, so trust him with vengeance. Second point is God is jealous and he's jealous for his bride. The reason that this temple business was so shady was because this unholy stuff that was happening was, was really distorting the sign of the temple. Now, if the temple's a sign, it points to something. And what it points to is God's people being with God and worshiping God. That's the, that was the sign of the temple, was to be with God and to worship God. And that's being distorted. And that's a holy and sacred thing because God has always wanted and has designed humans to be with him and to worship him. That has always been a part of God's nature that he's designed humans to do that, okay? All the way back to Adam and Eve in the very yeah. beginning, God wanted to be with his people, but sin separated him. Mm -hmm. God still wants to be with his people, so he creates the tabernacle where you bring sacrifices in so that you can have a relationship with God to pay for your sin. Well, then they made the temple, and now we have people in the temple who are separating God from his people. That's going to anger God at any yes. point that you start separating people from God, you, it angers him. And God wanted to be with his people when he came down in the form of a man, Emmanuel, God with us, to dwell with us and to make it impossible for us to ever be separated from him again. And that's why he ended up coming in the form of man. Uh, it's, 
Interesting, Psalm 84.4 says, Blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praise. It leads to life for us to be with God and to worship God, to dwell in his house and sing his praise. Um, but they were also, these business folk, were, were breaking the greatest commandment, which also angers God. God's not cool with sin. If, if you read this passage and you think God can be cool with sin, I don't know what you were reading, but it wasn't right. this. Yeah. God's not cool with sin, and they're also breaking the greatest commandment to love God and love people. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. They're distorting the worship of God's people, and they're cheating them out of their money. And they're cheating them, yes. So you are basically hitting two birds with one stone in your business in the temple marketplace. They're making a marketplace out of the temple. But God does want to be with his people, and uh, when he did come in the form of Jesus, he's proving that he is jealous for his people. Um, but the injustice of people being separated from God and the sins of the world couldn't then be taken out just on animals. Jesus had to come and make himself the lamb so that he could uh, make it impossible for us to be separated from him again, which we now know, New Testament, nothing separates us from, from God, who are in Christ. Uh, but this justice that God gives doesn't always seem to be fair. A lot of people will say, oh, I don't, you know, I don't really like God's justice. And I like that you've said, oh, I don't like God's timing of justice either. Um, and then so we take justice into our own hands. Mm -hmm. But you know what? God's justice isn't always fair. And I thank God for that. Because it doesn't seem fair that God's wrath being poured out on an innocent person to pay our bill so we can be restored to God, that doesn't seem fair to me. But it did by justice, and it did by reconciliation. I have a friend whose parents, I, I grew up with them, and he, his uh, dad and his mom were in an argument one time, and his mom went into her office and locked the door. And now, mention the dad is like the form of power to me. He's like this monstrous man, and he's got this really deep voice. So when he's really gentle and he says something, it still sounds scary. But <laughs> it's true. But he's a soft-hearted guy and just um, does love the Lord, but also really loves his wife. And he could not stand that he was being separated from his wife, even by his bride. He couldn't stand that his bride was separated from him, from him even that it was his bride doing it. So she had locked the door, and him being himself, he just broke the door handle. <laughs> I kid you, he's ripped it off and opened the door, and he's like, no one keeps me from getting to my wife. I love you. And then he walked out of the room. <laughs> but point being here is this is a perfect picture of how God pursues his bride. Even when his bride tries to separate herself from him, he wants to be with his people. So first point is God is just. Trust him with um, vengeance. God is jealous. He's jealous for his bride. And the third is a really uplifting point that I saw, and it's that people are wicked. <laughs> it's super joyful. Uh, verses 23 through 25 dive into this, how Jesus doesn't trust man because he knows what's in them. Let me read it real quick. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. He did not trust them because he knew all people. And he needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. So he knew what was in man, and that's why he didn't trust them. Well, what's in man? I'm so glad you asked. There's a few verses that talk about it, and we're going to talk about them. Again, really joyful verses. Jeremiah 17, 9 says, The heart of 
the heart, human heart, is deceitfully, uh, is it deceitful above all things and desperately sick. And some other translations say wicked and desperately wicked. Who can understand it? See, and I think it's important to note, this isn't just other people having wicked hearts. Because we all know that there's wicked people out there. But everybody's heart heart. is wicked. Every heart has sin. Every single one of them. And that might sound really offensive. And if it does, that's because we're sinful people and we don't want to think poor of ourselves. But Jeremiah 17.5, just a few verses before that, says, Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. So what's in man? A heart that trusts a man and turns away from the Lord. Numbers 15.39 says it well as, as well. And it shall be a tassel for you to look at and remember all the commandments of the Lord to do them, not to follow after your own heart and your own eyes, which you are inclined to whore after. Doesn't, again, go ahead. It's amazing that he uses the word whore as a verb there. God is using the word whore as a verb. He's not saying that we're distracted by our own heart and our eyes. He's not saying that we're implicitly led astray. He's saying that our heart and our eyes lust and with passion after things that are wicked and evil. That's, that's what he's saying. There. That's the heart that's and, in and man. And the tassels are on the garments of the, the Jewish men to remind them of the commandments so that they won't whore after the wrong things. That's the whole point of that. Yeah. So we're getting a little bit of insight. This is the type of heart that humans have. Um, and, I mean, except for Frank, because he's perfect. But Proverbs 16.25. It's <laughs> yeah, actually going to make a point, too. But when we trust in man, because we don't, don't know what's in them, we end up getting let down. Um, and even when we trust in ourselves and what's in us. Proverbs 16.25 says that there is a way that seems right to a man. So many of us are like, you know what? This makes sense to me. I got this. I can do this. It makes sense to me. I'm going to do it my way. But in the end, it, the way leads to death. That's yeah. what Proverbs says about man who trusts in himself. It, mm-hmm. it does. There's and actually another verse, down, just another verse, one chapter, same chapter later. Yeah. 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 So what, what all this to say, man is not trustworthy. Right. Super profound. But man isn't trustworthy. When we do put ourselves our trust in man, like I said, we are let down. But that's not what culture preaches. Culture preaches look inside yourself if you want to find meaning, if you want to find the right way. Well, just trust your heart. Scripture says don't trust your heart. Mm-hmm. Don't trust other people's hearts. Jesus knew what was in their hearts, so he didn't trust them. Yeah. And that, it does set the stage for everything that happens later, that he's not serving the fear of man. Because he knows what's in man. He's serving the yeah. fear of God. So we are to trust God and to trust man to be man. And what I mean by that is man sins. So I trust man to sin. Humans do sin, and it would be foolish to think that the people who love you wouldn't sin against you because they're humans and they sin. So inevitably, a healthy relationship couldn't be a sinless relationship because there's no such thing between man and man. There's no such thing. Right. So... Moving from that, a healthy relationship can't be a sinless relationship. It's not about being sinless. It's about being forgiving. This is why we need the cross. God's vengeance, which was poured out on Jesus unfairly, restores us to God and us to each other. That's right. 
Because God has graciously forgiven me, I am mandated to graciously forgive others. So if you call yourself a Christian, forgiveness, forgiveness is the way that you operate in relationships because people will sin against you and you will sin against others. So you're going to have to ask for forgiveness as well. We trust in the hope of Christ, not in the hope of us doing things really perfectly. So what is our job as Christians when we are angry at injustice, when someone sins against us? We'll get into that a little bit more. Okay. So that last point, verses 23 through 25, um, I mentioned this to Luke, who put together our preaching calendar for this. And I said, look, I know to look at just three verses uh, in the midst of this uh, series where we're trying to get through the entire book of of John in 50 weeks would probably not work. But would would you mind if we just had one Sunday on 23 through 25? He said, no, we can't do it. But literally, we could do 40 minutes on those oh, yeah. three verses. Oh, it's yeah. so deep. And you did a nice job of, of, you know, kind of an overview of bringing out what Jesus Thanks. is saying there. Also, next week when we start the story of Jesus and Nicodemus, when Nic- Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night, um, understand that a lot of scholars say that these three verses actually help set that up mm-hmm. for us, that Nicodemus comes to Jesus uh, thinking that he's smarter than Jesus and he can ask all these questions and trap Jesus. And Jesus goes right at what is in Nicodemus's heart. So these verses say Jesus knows what's in Nicodemus. Nicodemus doesn't even know what's in Nicodemus. Mm-hmm. He thinks he's very clever. So they set that up as well. So here are my, here are my three points. The first is the cleansing of the temple. Uh, why? I, I, I have had so many people over the years come to me and say, oh, you're a Christian, or I'll tell them about Jesus or whatever, and they will specifically point to this passage that somehow they've read, this passage, and they'll say, I cannot believe in a, sa- in a Savior who displays violence and anger, and that's the end of the story. They're not going to be able to accept Jesus, bad Jesus. He's, he's angry, and he displays violence. Uh, well, you have to understand the context. You also have to understand who he is. He's God. He has every right to be angry at sin. And in fact, God's anger does burn against sin. And don't you wish that God's anger would burn against sin as long as it's everybody else's sin. Amen? <laughs> See, we, we love justice as long as everybody else is getting justice. And we love grace as long as we're the ones getting grace. But what we really need is a God who is all about justice and who is angry at sin. And then Jesus is demonstrating this. You mentioned the whip. I mean, think about this. A lot of people will also say, well, Jesus just went in there, saw what was going on, and he went off. He had an episode. He probably regretted it later. No. He sat down and contemplated. He, he did this with forethought. He's weaving this, this whip together. He, he might have been there for an hour. Some of you, I do, like I said, do a lot of weddings. You know, there's often a unity component. You know, you light unity candles or the sand or whatever. Uh, lately, uh, in the last six or seven years, one that's really popular is the unity braid. Has anybody seen this? Okay, so every time they start to do the unity braid, it's like six feet of this braid, and you're sitting there going, they're going to braid that whole thing now? Okay, the, the sermon wasn't even that long in the wedding, you know? So, and, and what they do is they start braiding it, and 30 seconds later, they're like, we'll do the rest of this later. Yeah, sure you will. You'll be on your honeymoon. Anyway, um, <laughs> He's sitting there weaving this whip together. He's thinking about this. He's, he's simmering. He's saying, I have to do this. Second of all, just think about the, the image of the whip. You know, maybe a little bit of uh, bookending going on here. At the end of, uh, of, of his ministry, he's whipped before he's put on the cross. So 
There's this whip incident here, and then at the end of his ministry, he is, is whipped. A little irony there. And then, again, the problem is, is that we, we forget or we don't understand that God's anger burns against sin. And this fact will divide and winnow the faith community. It will. William Farley writes this. Faithful gospel ministry means preaching the whole counsel of God. That includes God's infinite grace, mercy, and love. These truths seldom divide. We're not going to be divided over that. But faithful ministry also includes God's holiness, his wrath, the inflexible nature of his justice, and the reality of eternal conscious torment in hell for those who don't believe in Jesus. These truths tend to cause division, and they do. And they do. Um, it's, nobody has ever told me that they're leaving the church because we don't preach enough about Jesus and his grace and uh, the Bible. But they do leave the church because we talk about sin. I've had many people leave the churches I've led because we talk about sin. So the sins, what's going on here? And these sins are sins, but they're also sins that are very unjust, and they're being committed in the temple, his house, no less, and here they are. Number one, there were money changers there. Uh, in order to pay, when you went to Passover in the temple each year, you also had to pay the temple tax. And so in order to pay the temple tax, you had to change your currency into the temple currency. And of course, since they were the only ones with the temple currency, the, the exchange rates were extortionist. They were exorbitant. Okay? They were not fair. So they were, they were cheating people there. And then the animals that you mentioned that were for sale. Some people, if they live close enough, they might bring their animal for sacrifice because they picked the best animal, the most perfect animal that they have, but they had animal inspectors there. And so they'd have to get their animal inspected and approved before that they could sacrifice it properly for their sins. And so they'd show the inspectors. The inspectors never approved any animal that was brought in from the outside. It was already a done deal that they weren't going to approve those animals. They'd say, nope, sorry, your animal is not approved, and we need to take it from you. But look, here, we have this pen of pre-approved animals. Anybody ever get pre-approved for a loan when you went and bought a house? See, this saves time. It's a, it's a great service there, but of course the animals are priced at extortionist prices. So a, a lamb that might cost $100 is $300 in the temple. So they're profiteering, and, and God is very clear about this. Uh, uh, you read through, Le, uh, yeah, I know, Leviticus. Read through Leviticus. This is injustice, and it's sin, and God speaks against it. Uh, Luke pointed out at the preaching collective that also what would happen is you would, you would bring in your animal, they'd inspect it, they'd say no, and they'd take it, and then they'd sell you the, the, the new animal, and then an hour later you might walk through that area of the temple and look in the pen, and now your animal that was not approved is now in the approved pen, being sold to somebody else. Wouldn't you be mad? I mean, isn't that awful? Aren't you glad Jesus went in there and cleansed the temple? I mean, when you start to understand what's really going on there. Um, and, and, of course, there were people who, like you say, they travel too far. They can't bring their animal. And so it is. You use the uh, illustration of the ballpark. I use the illustration of the airport. Once you get past TSA, now you want a sandwich. It's going to be an $18 sandwich. And what are you going to get? You're going to get a wilted piece of lettuce, something that looks like turkey, on Wonder Bread for $18. But what, you can't say, hey, I'm going to go out and go to the subway at 44th and Van Buren. You can't do that. Or a $4 pack of gum. Now, at the airport, of course, you're not required to buy a sandwich or a pack of gum. I get that. 
Nevertheless, it is a way of trapping the consumer into a situation where they have no choice. Here you go. Let me bring this home a little bit more. Um, we could talk about all kinds of economic injustices, and you need to hear this. I am a free market capital, capitalist guy. You need to understand that. But there are severe injustices going on in our system. And here's one that just, that really, it's just one little example that represents the whole thing, but it drives me crazy. Um, Jackie and I have pretty decent jobs. We're very good with our money. We were trained well. We understand stuff. Generally, what, for instance, with cars, generally what we do is we, we don't pay a car payment to a finance company. We pay a car payment to ourselves, and what we do is we save for our next car that way, interest-free, while it's collecting some interest, okay? And then we'll go out and we buy a used car, and we, we generally will pay cash uh, for our used car. That's, that's an advantage that we have in this marketplace. Many other people who say, no, I don't want to do that. I don't want to pay cash for a depreciating asset, and I get that. So I'm going to go ahead and use the loan company. But if you are a person of wealth, of ways, of means, of education, if, if you're not caught in the cycle of poverty in any way, you're going to go to a car dealership, and you're going to get a, an interest-free loan or a loan that's nine-tenths of a percent or 1.2%. You're going to get a loan that's a reasonable rate. That is not true for people who are caught in this cycle of poverty. And I know that just the word cycle of poverty might bother some of you. But there is a cycle of poverty that some of our systems helps to perpetuate. We have people coming into our church occasionally who need help with, with money because their income, uh, their, their expenses exceeds their income. We don't just hand out money, we don't just pay bills, we ask them to bring in uh, their paychecks and their expenses and we wanna help them with their budget. We wanna take them through and say, what you're doing isn't sustainable or you need to do this and this and this and then you can be sustainable and we'll be your bridge to get you through that. We'll pay your APS bill. We'll, in some cases, we've even paid partial rent in order to help people get through it, but also help them to see how they can make it sustainable. Here's what drives me crazy. The number of people who are caught in this cycle, they're very poor, they're working minimum wage jobs, they're trying to make ends meet. I would argue that living in Phoenix, Arizona, living in Phoenix, you can't live and work here without a car and without a car that works. Uh, it, it's just virtually impossible. Maybe you can figure out the bus system and, and all of that, but the, realistically, if you have a car and Fam, other commitments and, and, you're, and you're working you, and, and you live in Phoenix, you're going to need a car. And you're going to need a car to, that works. I can't tell you how many people have brought in their, their loan paperwork from a dealership where they bought an $11,000 used car, nice little used car and it's working, but you get down to the bottom of this contract and in the end they're going to pay $19,000 over 72 months for that car because the finance company is charging them 25%. Because they don't know better, and I know, don't email me, they're a bad risk. You have to charge higher interest for a bad risk. Well, doesn't that 25% or 19% or 29%, doesn't that interest rate keep them in the cycle of poverty? And the answer is yes, and that is unjust. I believe that's unjust. And if you presented that scenario to Jesus, he would say, that's a problem. You're, 
You know how when you go to a car dealership, they're going to get you one way or the other. Otherwise, they're not in business. They have to make a profit. But that is exorbitant. That is extortionist. So that's the type of thing that we're looking at here. God sees all of this as an injustice and a defilement of the temple, his, his house. I mean, read the Pentateuch. Read the prophets. Read the Psalms. Um, what Jesus saw there was that his people's faith had become crass, materialistic, and lacked order. I'm so glad that doesn't happen today, but <laughs> the, people, his, the faith of his people had become crass, materialistic, and lacked order. And by the way, this idea of lacking order, genuine gospel love promotes order. It promotes order in our lives. It promotes order in our relationships. It promotes order in our careers, in our education. Genuine gospel love promotes order. Paul even talks about uh, when he writes to the Corinthians, he says, look, your worship services are completely disordered, which means you don't understand the gospel. And if you understood gospel love, if you truly loved each other, your worship services would have order to them. So, so genuine gospel love promotes order. Jesus is king, priest, and uh, I'm sorry, king, prophet, and judge. He's king, prophet, and judge. And here we see more of the prophet and judge part of Jesus. Like I said, and like you said, you can't put God in a box, our box, and just hope that he's going to be our big sky fairy and wish granter. Here's the second thing, zeal for my house. Okay, God has a zeal for his faith community, for his church, for his temple, and this follows my number one point pretty well. And it's a very short point, here's all I want to say about that. The idea that Christianity can exist without faith community, especially one that's striving for righteousness, biblical integrity, and faithfulness to the true gospel, is both foolish and it's unbiblical. And Jesus would never think that was a good idea. I, I am often just amazed at how people will try to shame me or attack me for speaking of the importance of the bride of Christ, the church. And not by non-Christians. These aren't non-Christians who are saying this. These are people who supposedly profess Christ as their Savior. This whole idea, I hear this all the time, well, I can be a Christian and not be part of a faith community. No, you can't. You need to be a, you're called to be a part of God's house, of the kingdom of God, of his faith community. Hebrews chapter 10 says, you do not forsake the gathering of the saints for worship, corporate worship, okay? So that's important as well. And then number three, here's my third one, and this is where, it's not really a dialogue, it's just, this is my question for you in the next generation, okay? Read your church history. Actually, you don't even need to read church history to know that this is true. The, the church is often a mess. Can I get an amen? Amen. Yeah, you're not too sure about that. Like a <laughs> trick question, right? <laughs> the church is often a mess. Why is the church a mess? Because it's filled with sinful people. That's why. And it's led by sinful people. That's why the church is a mess. Yet... Jesus loves his church, his bride, with an agape, unconditional, selfless, compassionate love. No matter what, he loves us even when we're unlovable. So it's always been a mess. But in the last six months to a year, I felt like it's been more of a mess than it's been in, a, in quite a while. The church is, is, is in disarray. 
big C church. It's in disarray. There is so much division going on. Paul speaks very sternly in his letters in the New Testament against division, factions, and gossip. And yet, I would say that, that those are the three um, adjectives that best describe the American church today. Division, faction, and gossip. And so we look at Jesus, and I know that he's speaking metaphorically, but he's also using the temple, the house of God, to help people understand. He says, destroy this temple, his body, but also destroy this temple, and we're going to raise it back up. You know that in the end, his house is going to be restored in the new Jerusalem. In fact, that is his house, is the new Jerusalem, and Jesus is the temple. We understand that. But what can we do by the power of the resurrected Christ and the filling of the Holy Spirit, what can you and I today as church leaders do to restore his house here? We're never going to get it perfect. We're never going to get it right. But isn't there something that we're called by God, filled by the Holy Spirit to do in order to start working towards restoring his house, his faith community here and today? What would you suggest? And I'm guessing you might go to scripture. Yeah. Hey, Trey, how do you fix the world? <laughs> I can answer that. Um, I, but I think, I think it, it is important to say, side note, on God's temple. So Jesus was representing himself as the temple. There is going to be the representation of God being with his people and us worshiping him in heaven for eternity. But there's also that happening right now in you and I. Yes. We are... We are, our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. In Corinthians, Paul talks to the Corinth, uh, people of Corinth and he says, hey, when you deface the temple, I'm paraphrasing, this is the Trey prayer phrase version. When you deface the temple, you end up uh, angering God in the sense that he dwells in you. So not just in yourself, but also in your, in your brother. There's, if you destroy God's temple or you deface God's temple with sin, God's going to get angry at that. So first, I think, and I love that you say this a lot. You say people want to go and change the world, but if they could just change their world, they'd find that they'd do a lot better or something like that. Well, yeah, they get frustrated because they can't change the world, and then they don't do anything. Yeah. You could just maybe work on this little area right here. You could give me that the butcher That would be knife. significant. I ruined that one for you. Sorry. That's all right. <laughs> but um, it's a good quote when he says it. But it is true, though, that... Um, we do, everybody wants to change the world, but if we would just change ourselves, if we did focus on what God's doing in us and the people that God brings in our life around us, how we could do these things mm -hmm. and accept that invitation that God gives us, it would, I think it would change things. But I'm going to read something, and I think this answers the question. What to do when we're outraged at injustice? What to do that would, um, I guess, put us on track to being restored? And it's labeled in my Bible as marks of a true Christian. And I'm just going to read it. Uh, let love this be... Is, this is Romans... Ro oh, sorry. This is Romans 12, 9 through 21. And, and what is it titled in your Bible? It's titled in my Bible, Marks of a True Christian. Okay. So what does Christ's bride look like? What's it supposed to look like? What should we be heading towards to be God's temple? Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Not with arm length, I don't want to know you affection, but brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. Without prayer, none of this, we shouldn't even talk about any of it. 
We need to be in relationship with the Father, and prayer is, our, is that perfect connection. Um, but contribute to the needs of the saints and, show, and seek to show hospitality. And then, well, what am I supposed to do when somebody sins against me or I see injustice happen? I got it. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Yeah, yeah, I know, but they, did, they were really, really mean. Or they did something really, really horrible. Paul has no idea what I'm Paul, dealing yeah, with. Yeah, <laughs> he has no idea what happened. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. It doesn't say dissension. In fact, Galatians 5 talks about how dissensions, divisions, rivalries, how those are the exact opposite. That's the works of the flesh. They're evident. But the fruits of the Spirit have nothing to do with that. It has to do with harmony. Live in harmony with one another. Gosh, that's huge. That's not happening today. Do not be haughty, but, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. What does a Christian do? Well, we don't repay evil for evil. That's not how justice works with us. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, if your enemy, not your friend, not some stranger, your enemy, someone you shouldn't like, if they are hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. That's not a sign of of uh, retaliation. Oh yeah, we're just going to burn his head with fire. No, this is actually calling them to repent that they may be saved. In the, in the Jewish days that they would have these, um, if a brother sinned against a brother or a Jewish man or woman sinned against another, they would put this bucket on their head and walk around the town with burning coals in it. And it would be a sign of repentance. Hey, I'm owning the fact that I sinned against this person and I'm repenting of that. So this isn't just like a, oh yeah, we keep burning coals on his head. I'm going to be nice to him so I can really get at him. No, it's to call, it's, it's to call him to repentance that he may be saved yeah. or she may be saved. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. That's how we can restore, start to restore the temple. I think so, yeah. I would add this. By the way, that word harmony in there, live in harmony, notice it doesn't say live in conformity with everybody else. Okay. Again, it's just, it's, it's fascinating. People today, at least in America, people today, they want to go to a church where people look like them, think like them, dress like them, vote like them, have the same exact biblical doctrines, and if anything's out of whack, they curse the church and leave. That's, that's the environment we live in. Paul says to the church in Corinth, chapter 12, he says the church is a body. And, and the word harmony means that there are going to be many different parts, and they're going to be different parts, but when you put them together, it makes this beautiful end product, a beautiful symphony. Could you imagine going to a 120-person choir and they're all sopranos? That would suck, <laughs> right? See, most people today, they want to go to a church that's it's just a church of elbows. I'm an elbow, so I want to go to a church of elbows. How boring would that church be? Now, elbows are important. I'm glad my arms have elbows. If they didn't, I'd, have to have, I'd always have to have somebody else feed me and probably do other things for me. Okay? But my whole body isn't an elbow. 
Where, where is the sense of sight? Where is the sense of smell? Where is the sense of hearing? Where are my feet? Where are my hands? Where's Jesus, the head? Harmony. That's the way we're supposed to live. And then I would add this. This is the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5. Seeing the crowds, Jesus went up on the mountain. He sat down. His disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, and here's the first thing he taught them, the very first beatitude, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What does it mean to be poor in spirit? What it means to be poor in spirit is you are going to be humble, you are going to have humility, you are going to be quick to listen and slow to speak. You're not going to believe that your flesh, your heart is right and that you should be able to go and do things and make things right. You're somebody who's going to submit to who God is and submit to his plan. That's what it means to be poor in spirit. That's the thing he leads with. Do you think there's much humility and humbleness and quick listening out there today? doesn't seem to be. He says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, mourn their sin, not point out the sin of others, but mourn their own sin, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, not blessed are the weak. Blessed are the meek. The word means gentleness, for they shall inherit the earth. I'll just confess to you, that's the one I have the most trouble with. I'm not exactly a gentle person. That's the one that I really need to dwell on. Verse 6, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied because they're seeking God. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Not blessed are the gossipers, the dividers, and the faction makers. Blessed are the peacemakers, and blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for your word and its truth, and we just pray that we would be Romans 12 and Matthew 5 Christians. Your word tells us in Psalm 127 that if you don't build a house, we labor in vain. But what you're calling us to is our labor, and that is Romans 12 and Matthew 5. So help us to do that. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to sing one more song together, and while we do that, we're going to take communion. Those of you who have your, you have your communion uh, kits, um, those of you at home, hopefully you've prepared your elements as well. The body of Christ is represented by the wafer, the bread, whatever it is that you're using for that element, the, the new covenant for the forgiveness of our sins, that is the juice, the wine, what you're using. When we come to this table... And we take these elements, we're proclaiming Christ's death until he comes again. We are also proclaiming that we confess our sin, that we align our lives with Jesus, and that we celebrate the fact that now.
now one more time. I run to the Father, I fall in the grace, I'm done with the hiding, no reason away. My heart needs a surgeon, my soul needs a friend, so I'll run to the Father again, again and again and again. Thank you, Malia, for leading us. Thank you all for being here and worshiping with us and having this very special time with uh, Trey. Are you in here? Or did you already? Oh, there you are. My glasses fog up when I have the mask on. Would you head out to the patio so people can greet you and congratulate you and do the COVID hug from six feet away? Anyway, head out there. And if you all would head out that way, and if you want to go to the patio, we've opened the patio. This day we've reopened the patio so you can go. We don't have coffee yet, but we've reopened the patio. If you want to greet Trey or if you want to head out, just head out that way. Uh, let this be our sing and our prayer as we go. Now may the Lord bless you. Make his face to shine upon you and to be gracious to you. May the Lord give you his peace now and forever. Amen. Go and live all of all for Jesus. We'll see you next week.